Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, the BBC announces cuts as Director General Tim Davey faces up to his licence fee freeze. We'll find out what's on the chopping block. The Daily Telegraph hits record subscription figures as the UK press ponders the future of news amid the cost of living squeeze. Plus, disinformation journalist Cheyenne Sadar Izadeh shares the BBC's latest efforts to combat fake news. And in the media quiz, we find out who's been making up for media faux pas. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In this week's news, the BBC and the Attorney General went to court over the details of a story involving an allegedly abusive MI5 informant. Uh, The BBC was given permission to broadcast the story, but without revealing the identity of the accused. We also had Partygate leaks continuing to emerge from across the press, from ITV to BBC's Panorama, culminating in Sue Gray Day. Meanwhile, over on the stock market, shares of Snapchat owner Snap plunged more than 40% on Tuesday dragging down a lot of its rivals too. And Ricky Gervais was in the spotlight after jokes in his new Netflix special continued his habit of punching down to the LGBT community. Uh, The comedian defended the need for taboo comedy whilst critics are calling for the platform to enforce its policies and remove the potentially harmful content. But onto the media stories you need to know about this week. I've got two media experts here to take us through the headlines. So first up, we've got the co-founder of production company Darth Doris. It's Jamie East. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Last time I saw you was in Sweden and you were telling uh, the audio and radio masses about the Smart 7. Why not tell our masses about it too? It's a daily news podcast that tells you seven things you need to know. It's seven in the morning, seven minutes long. We designed it for the daily commute the week before uh, the first lockdown hit. Uh, we decided to crack on and, and launch it anyway because there were, no one had anything else to do. And we did 10 million downloads uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it's been great. We've expanded into Germany, into Ireland, and got a fitness one, got an entertainment one coming. You know, it's all good. It's all good. I mean, 10 million is not bad for a, a lockdown project, is it? It's been nice that people have adopted it as part of their daily habit. It was always seen as something we knew we'd always struggle to get people to replace their existing kind of commuting podcast habit with a new one. So we designed this to be just the thing that they listen to on the way to the train station or on the way to the bus stop. Uh, and they seem to be going really well. That's good. Uh, also with us is uh, Press Gazette editor Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me back. Uh, no worries. It's uh, I'm sure your favourite time of the month when the ABCs are out. What's the latest? Who's doing well? 
it's got to be a slightly samey story, and I'm sure you can imagine that there's, as people always discuss, just industry-wide decline in print. However, I'd say the winners in April were the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror. Both grew ever so slightly month on month, which obviously is bucking the trend slightly. But then what I also found interesting was the freeze are still staying steady and solid or even growing their distribution. So obviously it's slightly different. It's not a paid print circulation, but the Metro and City AM are both sort of doing well, I think, certainly by their print metric. They're, they're not having to panic and put less copies out at the moment. I mean, it's still a challenge for them, isn't it? Yeah, everyone with their, their phones out on the tube in the morning, uh, slightly different to 20 years ago, picking up a copy of the Metro before they go on their journey. Especially where you've got, for example, parts of the Jubilee line now where even underground you can get 4G. So I'm sure the, the owners of those papers weren't too happy when that got introduced. Change is always at the forefront of the media and today is uh, no different. This week is no different. On Thursday, the BBC announced a digital first strategy for the broadcaster. And there seems to be kind of quite a lot of chatter and confusion about what the changes mean. This is uh, Director General Tim Davey making some announcements. Jamie, what have we heard uh, from the BBC about what they're going to be cutting? Well, I think the the headline that everyone will take away is that they're scything through some of the, they, they class the smaller Smaller digital stations, so CBBC, uh, I think Radio 4 Extra and BBC 4, I think, were the ones that I think will garner the most attention. The BBC always do this. They, they announce a ton of cuts and then the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. And then they also announce that they've just signed on. Chris Kamara, the, you know, millions of, like, tons of talent have joined uh, BBC Sounds, which gives you some indication where they're, where they're placing their chips for the next kind of five years, I would say. Um they can't do right for doing wrong and there isn't a lot that they could have done i think anyone in tim davis position would probably have done the same thing it will there will be lots of emotional outcry at cbbc going off and this that. but you know you have to be pragmatic i very much doubt the, the figures for something like cbbc or radio 4 extra on a linear platform warrant the, the the costs you know even just the compliance costs of all of that wouldn't wouldn't have been worth it and you know, the the kind of U-turn of putting BBC Three back on linear, I would argue, probably wasn't a great idea. They should have doubled down, stuck to their, stuck to their guns. It, again, it was a bit... It, I think they're always panicking about having a six-music BBC Asian Network-style protest and Ferrari about that. But I think, in reality, they're doing the right thing. All of these channels deserve to still find ears and eyes, but not on linear TV where the costs are just abhorrent and just just wasteful. If the BBC knows how to do one thing, it's to waste money. All they needed was 285 million of cuts. And actually they found 500 million, but they're investing um, more into digital. I mean, Charlotte, from a journalism perspective, there's potentially quite a bit of cuts coming to local and, and regional BBC. Do we know what's, uh, what's likely to disappear or change? Yes. Uh, so interestingly to note first that there were only just quite a lot of cuts to journalism in the regions in uh, about 2020 or announced in 2020 anyway. So for example as well, the long-running current affairs programme Inside Out was cut at that time and then about uh, at the start of this year, they introduced a replacement called We Are England. That has now been cut after only a few months. So that obviously 
wasn't working in the way they hoped it would. In addition, local TV news bulletins in some areas seem to be being cut. Uh, for example, BBC South Today Oxford and uh, also Look East Cambridge, that operation. And coverage of that region is going to be moved to Norwich, apparently. So this is all part of this drive to go digital first. So essentially what they're saying is they're not necessarily cutting investment in journalism overall, but that less will be in TV and radio and more will be online. But I must say I had quite a funny conversation with someone I was with earlier when I said they were going to be a digital first BBC they said, well, haven't they said they're going to be a digital first BBC many times already? So it is interesting that that's sort of still the stage we're at, I guess. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, bra- it's a bravery thing, isn't it? It's, it's exactly the same as, uh, you know, any form of media, whether it be print, whether it be uh, music, whether it be television, SVOD, the, it's, it's the changing of the old guard. You know, music went through a horrible kind of transitionary period over a, period, over a, over a decade and has, and has come out arguably in ruder health and print is still clinging on and and the bbc is still clinging on it's just the changing of you know it's like moving away from from the print press to to photoshop it takes that long to kind of shift that giant industry over it takes bravery and kind of i guess being quite thick-skinned about about doing it there there is going to be blood lost there there always is but it and inevitably it just has to happen none of the lists that they've made you know creating a single 24-hour tv news channel is just perfect common sense the fact that they had so much going on anyway was just ludicrous it makes sense from an editorial point of view and from a from a financial point of view as well the fact they've managed to find 500 million pounds of savings when they're only asked to save 285 goes to show just how much money is washing around in the bbc i think uh, there is still a lot. I mean, when you look at some of the, the shifts, so they're moving BBC Four uh, online. Jamie, if you were going to write the channel's obituary, its broadcast obituary, what would you include? What's it going to be remembered for? Um, I think BBC Four was great, or is great, was great. Did they kind of accidentally invent slow TV? Did they do that weekend? I think that was that was the great one where they... Um, there was, wouldn't someone just fly around the coast of Britain, really, in, in like real time? And it was great, you know. No one watched it, but, you know, it's nice to know it's there. It's like the shipping forecast, isn't it? You know, no one uses the shipping forecast, really, you know, but it's you always know it's there. So BBC Four was good at that. And you did tend to find stuff on there. Music found a good home on BBC Four as well. A lot of music documentaries, a lot of music programming. Uh, and the spillover of things like Glastonbury uh, into there were, were great. And all those old episodes of Top of the Pops, uh, of course, as well. Charlotte, with CBBC, it's probably less of an issue maybe than BBC Four. This is an audience that are pretty iPlayer first. And I think if you talk to a seven or eight-year-old, they're somewhat surprised about the idea of linear television, somebody else choosing what you should watch. That's the right thing to do, isn't it? Probably move that that channel to, to just be on iPlayer. Yeah, I think it completely makes sense. I wasn't surprised by that one. And it's sort of like um, what Jamie was saying just now about Maybe the BBC should have stuck to its guns on keeping BBC Three. CBBC viewers are the viewers who are forming even more online habits than young BBC Three viewers. So in that sense, it completely makes sense. I think the only thing maybe the BBC should be wary of is that obviously they are meant to be for everyone. And I don't know, I I don't have figures with me, um, unfortunately, but I wonder if there are like families who, you know, 
can't afford smart TVs and iPads and stuff if they'll find it harder to access that content if it's not on TV. But yeah, I don't know. I just that that would be my one concern. If you're 70 plus with a kind of a, a slightly dodgy broadband plan um, and that you don't really understand watching you know, the TV through the internet. It means kind of less stuff for you though, doesn't it, Jamie? Or have we abandoned those, that audience, they're going to be paying the license fee anyway, so tough. I think it's it's the transition thing. You know, you know, BBC Three, CBBC, BBC Four, generally pretty kind of either young or kind of middle-aged but internet savvy kind of demos all of those ones they know what they're doing you know i mean look there'd be outcry if they did it for uh, bbc2 or for radio2 or something like that there'd be you know the, the silver the silver foxes of the world would go absolutely crazy about it and understandably so but this is a way of transitioning their audience or at least are they moving an audience onto online or are they just going where the audience are already i suspect it's a bit of both and and like you say charlotte they're not going to lose any any young audience from closing the linear CBBC down. I, I get what you mean about access, but they have to make a start somewhere. You know, license fee existed, you know, Colour TV, they ploughed millions and millions into making colour programming before before hardly anybody had colour TVs. You have to make that leap somewhere. Other things that they're um, going to be changing is taking Five Live off AM, um, shutting down Radio 4's Long Wave, which they seem to talk about every few years anyway. Last time talking about valves being... In, in short supply uh, it sounded slightly dodgy but uh, that that's off too and some of these changes are going to take a few years to come through uh, when we talk about digital change though the telegraph's been doing pretty well it's announced digital subscription growth of 40 percent charlotte they've been doing pretty well digitally haven't they yeah really well basically for a while now they've focused so much on subscriptions only over traffic and just print newsstand sales and it's clearly working they do have a big target which is to have 1 million paying subscribers and 10 million registered users by the end of 2023 so registered users are people who have like signed up for email newsletters and things like that and they're currently at over 744,000 so I think they're feeling pretty confident in their position the whole way through the COVID pandemic they grew profits and I think to be honest they're actually a really good example of subscriptions dub right jamie are you a telegraph subscriber i'm not actually i don't know why i'm not i should be i suppose i i think you know i worked for a number of years for news uk and for wireless and on printing and across broadcast and radio and they've just done it right you know it's the same as the times you know the times is another success in terms of subscriptions whether or not it's as profitable as it remains to be seen you know and i'm trying to think of an, of an audio equivalent i guess tortoise would be an online audio equivalent of actually what happens when you just stick to your guns and it's the same as everything you they've concentrated on content you know i i know you know robbie collins at the telegraph for instance a lot of their, their, their film writers they cover film in a way that very few other british publications do with the exception of empire and arguably the sunday times and it's paid off you know people are subscribing and it's it sounds like such a base element thing to say but you know i'm sure we've all been in millions of meetings with ceos and editors and, and all the rest of it where you try and hit them with the content stick and it's like yeah but surely there's another way surely there's another way it's like no there's really not another way you just have to make good stuff that people want to read it's not that tricky yet that that concept seems to elude a hell of a lot of uh, certainly certainly the dailies I mean, for Smart7, uh, that's kind of an ad-funded proposition. Um, 
is on your roadmap an element of subscription, be it sort of forced or voluntary? Is that something you, know, you think it's, about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult not to. You know, that's I think that's certainly where podcasts are heading with, um, you know, integration with Apple and Acast, who are our uh, platform providers, have, have got a great kind of subscription element to them as well. It will happen eventually. Daily news? No. I mean, it's... It, I'd, I'd, why would anyone why would anyone pay for daily news it's, it's there it's everywhere it's omnipresent people would just go even if it was 10p they'd be going well i can just go and get this i can just listen to tortoise or i can go and listen to any number of things it doesn't matter how good we package it but that's not to say that there isn't an opportunity to expand the brand into stuff like that we're a short form audio proposition so to get people to, to expect people to pay for it i'm not sure they will pay for seven minutes you know, that's, that would have to be one hell of a hell of a seven minutes. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Charlotte, we've talked a lot about subscription on the podcast with that kind of Netflix and Disney Plus and all of that with press subscriptions, you know, and I hit the paywall sometimes on the Telegraph and I don't think I'd want to subscribe to Telegraph. It's not necessarily my thing. It does slightly annoy me when maybe I can't read those things. I'm used to getting it for free. But, you know, cost of living crisis and all that. Do you think people are going to scale back some of these subscriptions, some of the success that press has had? Do you think they they might see their subscribers dropping a little bit? I think that is the risk this year, yeah. But for uh, titles targeting more affluent audiences, I suppose, like the Telegraph and the Times. Maybe that will be less of a problem than if they were targeting a lower demographic audience and not an ABC One audience. But then the lower demographics are the ones that have struggled to build subscription propositions anyway. In times like these, with the cost of living crisis, but also with the Ukraine ongoing and all sorts to do with the government and although Partygate it might be technically over there's still lots of questions about Boris Johnson's longevity I suppose. With all of that context I do think that where people can they will want to keep a trusted news source. I think if they're the type of person that has decided to sign up to a Telegraph or Times or FT or Economist subscription anyway I think maybe they would want to cut other things first but you know, he knows I could be completely wrong on that. Be a big argument over the dinner table. Is it Disney Plus or is it the Telegraph? <laughs> Which one goes? Uh, Jody, nine-year-old, what do you want to keep? Disney Plus or the Telegraph <laughs> or Chopper? So picking up on what you've just said there, I think at the telecom conference, they were saying that everything's going to end up being posh news for posh people. Is that right then? Well, it was raised as a possibility, which I think it does often come up in the subscription question and is a good thing for us as an industry to sort of stay aware of. It was raised at a panel with some sort of top media executives and the chief commercial officer at the FT sort of basically admitted it's a feasible outcome but said it's not a desirable thing if that would happen but he said it's feasible you'd be subsidising essentially mass journalism with the subscriptions. But then, so the other people on the panel were not so subscription-based as the FT, and they all said, no, we, you know, we completely disagree. We're still putting out legitimate trusted news that people are consuming. Without subscriptions, there's still lots of trusted news out there that will serve the people that can't afford to pay. People that were saying that were future chief executive, guardians, interim chief executive. They were saying, obviously, they've got the donations model, so people that, that like what they do, um, sort of essentially pay so that people that can't afford to pay 
can still read it because it doesn't have to go subscription-based. So they're saying this model works to make sure that trusted news isn't only posh news for posh people. Thanks, Bo. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And onto our deep dive this week. Earlier today, I spoke to BBC disinformation journalist Cheyenne Sadar Izadeh, all about what it's like responding to breaking news events such as the recent Texas shooting. Yeah, so like most editorial teams, we have a, we had an editorial meeting in the morning with you know, everybody, every, every journalist in the team and our editors, our duty editor for the day. And then we run through the stories that we're seeing. I'm usually the night owl in the team. I'm, I'm the person who sort of stays up until like two or three, four in the morning and looks at stories, usually the ones that are brewing up in the States. There are also other journalists who get up early in the morning and look at stories that are, you know, in Europe and in other parts of the world as the day starts. And then we gather there in the meeting and then we say, okay, this is this is something that we've seen. For instance... Like, you know, yesterday we were saying, OK, this shooting has happened and we're seeing this narrative being formed online and it's been shared by this politician and this member of Congress and it's false. OK, and then the obvious question would be, why is it false and how many people are seeing this? Do we have any idea how widespread this is? Can we use that example of, of the Texas shooting? So so obviously the event happens, there's some kind of breaking news on traditional outlets. And then what sort of places are starting to jump on this and uh, putting their own inaccurate spin on what they see? Places that would usually either benefit from it politically or, you know, you and I know the internet trolls, you know, people who just do it for what what is known as the lulls. Uh, and they just want to have a bit of a fun and it becomes a habit. And there are places on the internet that actually nurture that mm. type of behavior. You just troll for the sake of trolling. There's tons of them. So one of the examples in the immediate aftermath, we saw images of a trans person going viral on major platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, on TikTok. And they were claiming that's the shooter. And we sort of looked into it and we figured out it actually came from 4chan. So 4chan, it's one of the major hubs of internet subculture. All sorts of bizarre stuff happen on 4chan. You know, some of it is very innocuous, and but also there are aspects of 4chan that are very, very extreme uh, and very, very unsavory. So this particular one just came from uh, a board on 4chan, which is known as POL, P-O-L, which stands for Politically Incorrect. Uh, which give you an idea about what sort of topics are discussed there. So somebody just created this idea that this person 
was the shooter, despite the fact that we had screenshots of the shooter's Instagram and TikTok, and we knew exactly how he looked like. And he was shot dead, obviously, by police officers, by security officers. And this person suddenly on Reddit, who was a Redditor, found them, this trans person found themselves facing a torrent of hatred just because they'd been misidentified as the shooter by somebody who was just doing it either because they disliked trans people or they were just sort of trying to troll or they were just doing it for the sake of doing it. Who knows? But as I said, that's that's the culture on 4chan. I was just going to say, well, what you sort of tend to see then is slightly more mainstream, but maybe sort of far-right figures pick that up and move that across to Twitter. So someone like Candice Owens, I think, was picking up some of that type of information. And then it sort of gets washed through a load of people, doesn't it? Or it can do. Absolutely. Once it's found by an influencer, by somebody who's got major impact or has large following, that's it. That's all that is required. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just that person spreading it, as long as it's on, say, your Twitter feed or on Facebook feed, and one influencer sees it, that's it. You know, it's going to be all over the place. And we saw it actually, it was even tweeted by a, by a congressman, by actual sitting congressman. And they, they deleted the tweet. I, I actually heard it today repeated on the Today programme, something similar to what Candace Owens had tweeted. So that's, that's the way it works. It starts on a fringe, smaller platform, usually. Not always. Sometimes it actually starts on a major platform. And sometimes it comes directly from influencers, from politicians. It, that happens as well. But in this case, it came from a fringe place. And then before he knew it, within an hour, it was all over the internet. And of course, at the end of it, just adding, there's one person who's done nothing wrong, who's facing a torrent of abuse. So that's the dark side of it. Do you see partly your job to try and nip this in the bud and to to stop the spread by pointing out the inaccuracy and hoping that that stems that stems the flow? Well, I'm realistic about what I can and cannot do. Like, you know, our job as journalists is not to police the internet. We want a, a free internet. We rely on a free internet to do our jobs as journalists. And the internet has been a wonderful thing in terms of providing a this major space for everyone to share their ideas, to basically broaden the narrative outside just the realms of, you know, mainstream politics and mainstream uh, news organisations. So no, our job is not to police the internet. And the job of, you know, what turns up on a major platform is a matter for the tech companies and the social media platforms. They decide what, you know, they want and what they don't want on their platforms. But yes, there is a hope in the sense that when something like this happens and some, you know, innocent person is just checking their online feed to find out, you know, what's going on in Texas, what's happened, who's done it, uh, and they come across this stuff, because they're not, either they don't know 4chan or they're not going to put in the effort to go and find the exact threat on a very bad and unsavory board on 4chan, we put in the effort to go find that so that, you know, innocent person who's just found this information online can just look at the fact that, by the way, this is where it's come from and it's false and that person that you're angry at has done nothing wrong. That was Cheyenne Sadar Isaday. And if you're interested in hearing more of our chat, including tips on debunking fake news, just head to patreon.com slash mediapod. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll get access to bonus interview material with media podcast guests each week. Plus, it supports the making of the show. In fact, I met a listener this week who said he was on the verge of doing a Patreon sign up. So if you too are on the verge of doing a Patreon sign up, Patreon 
patreon.com slash media pod. Right. We'll be back after this. And on with the show, I've still got Charlotte and Jamie here looking at the media headlines. News about Russian oligarch Alexander Lebedev, who's quit his role at The Independent. Jamie, Russian oligarchs, they're not particularly popular at the moment. Why has he stepped down from The Independent? They just can't get a break, can they? Um, (laughs) I mean, it's it's because he's been placed under economic sanctions by Canada. Uh, for, in quote, uh, quote, directly enabling the Russian war in Ukraine. It means that he's, he's not got any formal role at, at the independence anymore. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in being kind of deeply suspicious at the uh, at the formality of, of this. The, the independent have always said that, you know, he's not had any real input on the business for a while. You know, obviously his son, can we refer to him as Lord Lebdevev mm. now, Eugenie? Is, is running things. I can see why he's been ostracised and removed. It's a bit of consolidation. It's similar to um, to your man from Chelsea who, who had to sell. But I, I, you just get the feeling they're just circling. You know, they're mm. just circling the runway until it's safe to land again. Is my personal take on all of this. Charlotte, um, a spokesman for the newspaper claimed Alexander has no role, commercial or otherwise, in the running of the paper. But is his ownership, regardless of all that, just a bit concerning? I think it's worth noting, by the way, that the actual company he stepped down from was Independent Print Limited. But the company that runs the independent nowadays is Independent Digital News and Media. So he was still associated with the body that bought the title. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a sticky question. I, I'm not one to judge other than... You know, they are Russian oligarchs. The family is reportedly, you know, quite close to Putin. I mean, do we know any nice uh, media proprietors, any nice billionaire media proprietors? I mean, you know, I don't know. I can't think of one, really. I mean, all media owners uh, have a tangled relationship with governments and governments of the day. I mean, Jamie, you've worked for News Corp. Um, Everyone ends up working for Rupert in some way, shape or form at at some point. And in probably in your slightly earlier holy moly days, I'm sure there were lots of tip offs from uh, from journalists about um, dodgy dealings by their bosses and proprietors, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, it's it's the same as it was. It's the same as it always will be. You know, nothing nothing changes at all. I think, you know, I was more concerned when George Osborne was the so-called editor of the Evening Standard. That concerned me more than Lebdevev being uh, the proprietor of it. And yeah, having worked for News Corp, News UK, on and off, and Sky when uh, when Rupert was, um, was still the owner of Sky for many years. So I've spent the vast majority of my professional life probably working for Rupert in some way, shape or form. Not that he would have a clue who I am. Um, and it's a tricky one. It's a, it's the balancing act that you, that you look yourself in the mirror and still go to work every day. You, we just get on with it. I don't think necessarily that any of them are better than any other, really. Yes, I'm sure they all caught the you know, number 10 courts, all of them, as do they when they need Ofcom sorting out. That's just the way it always has been. It's the way it always will be. But it's what you do on the shop floor that makes a difference, I think. Charlotte, do you think um, media moguls are kind of immune from regulation uh, and that sort of anybody who's in power in, in number 10, uh, they don't really want to take on the press barons, even if they're using slightly less ink than they, they used to? I think the publishers are in a pretty good position. And yeah, I mean, the newspapers might go to 
fewer people in print nowadays, but I do think they still have a massive audience online. And so the influence might be slightly different to what it used to be, but it still is there. And also the newspapers themselves in print, even if the wider public is slightly less interested, I think um, Whitehall and government and, and people there um, do still really care what goes on the front pages um, and sort of like to stay in the good books. Definitely. Just finally on this, I mean, Jamie, you're in a, a, a digital uh, business now. Do you think the the press have, have lost their influence or, as Charlotte said, they've just evolved their influence into different places? I think that they definitely have lost their influence. You compare it to you know, the Thatcher era or even the Blair era, how important it was to make sure that you had the sun on your side or that, the you know, which way the sun going to go. And, and I, I'm sure it's important to either side i'm sure number 10 care and i'm sure the newspaper proprietors care i genuinely believe that we're at a turning point though in terms of mood and how you know certainly people that are going to be voting age in five years time are not going to give two hoots about what the editor of the sun thinks about a potential prime minister i i think that has been a sea change over the past 10 years but as long as they both keep feeding the machine, then this, that relationship will never change. I think politicians will be terrified of getting on the wrong side and proprietors will be terrified of, of getting on the wrong side of legislation. The problem that, that the government has is that they're just not up to speed on the media enough. They don't understand the landscape. They understand the landscape even less than, than newspaper proprietors, for instance. You only have to look at... Um, the privatisation of Channel 4 and, and all the, the conversations that Nadine Doris has been having in public to show just how little they even understand the basic technology, let alone the intricacies of publishing to multiple platforms. It's just, it's nuts. Well, something that uh, every media baron is scared of is the wondrous world of the media quiz. <laughs> and this week it's entitled Mistakes and Makeups. I'm going to be describing three stories where media companies have made public apologies this week. I'll give you one word from the headline at a time. Just buzz in when you know the story and you'll buzz in with your name. So, Charlotte, you will say... Charlotte. And Jamie, you will say... Jamie. Right, here we go. Uh, question number one. So I'm going to gradually reveal these words. When you know what the story is, do buzz in. Manchester. Jamie. Charlotte. United. Oh, I think we were just there with Jamie. Jamie. It was the ticker tape on BBC News, the crawling text where someone uh, was, was testing a system or, a, or a, a, a worker was doing something behind the scenes and accidentally put Manchester United a rubbish live on air. Uh, it was great. It looked good. I watched the, the video. I think the next <laughs> one was something like rain everywhere. And I sort of quite like the kind of like teen speak uh, scroller. Yeah. Maybe that's what they need to jazz up to jazz up the news channels. Absolutely. It was like uh, the Steve Martin film. Was it LA Story? It was mm. exactly the same thing, wasn't it? The the road sign that would just, you know, uh, bored beyond belief. That is also a brilliant <laughs> film if you want to go. You Absolutely. Watch, so you haven't seen LA Story. Uh, a great line in that where it's like, um, some of these houses are nearly 20 years old. Anyway, uh, <laughs> go, go watch. Right, question number two. Uh, find... Phone numbers sharing hundred and fifty million dollars oh Twitter. Goodness. Oh god. No uh, one's got that one. I will reveal the answer no. then. So this is a news from Twitter. US regulators have fined the social media firm after it gave advertisers users contact information. Charlotte, is this one that you've uh, heard of this week? Yeah, I have learned it later about it. It just sounds like an absolute nightmare. Yeah, so this was um, Twitter uh, 
collected users' names and email addresses to use the service, and then they actually allowed advertisers to target those uh, fields without mentioning to users that they might do that. Right, question number three. Here are the words: Upside Down, Season Four, Jamie. Netflix. Jamie, what's this one? Uh, hopefully, it's that Season Four of Stranger Things is coming to Netflix tomorrow. That is a few, and they're going to be, I think, releasing this series in sort of two halves, which seems to be Netflix's uh, new trick to keep engagement up. Are you a Stranger Things fan? I am. It's a big family favourite in the household. We've, we've been very much looking forward to this. Probably not as much as Netflix have been looking forward to it, though. They've had a rotten old time of it of late. Apart from, apart from Better Call Saul and Bridgerton, I think Stranger Things is probably the the last remaining kind of uh, champion title that they've got. And that, even that's only got one season left after this one, hasn't it? Yeah, it's tough for them. Also, Charlotte, they're obviously going to try to up their revenue as their subscriber numbers have flailed a little. Are they going to crack down on password sharing? Do you share your Netflix password with anyone? Well, I use my brother's Netflix password. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Nadine Dorries all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I've got others. Don't worry. Good. Uh, all right. Well, that makes uh, Jamie the winner. Uh, it's a six-month free subscription of Netflix to Jamie, and it's Charlotte having a six-year backdated invoice from Netflix for your consumption of Stranger Things and everything else. Well done, uh, both of you. Um, that's it for the show today. Uh, Jamie, how can people keep up with what you're talking about uh, and the Smart Seven? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jamie East, or you can just search for the Smart Seven wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Lovely. And speaking of podcasts, Charlotte, you've been busy at Press Gazette Towers. There's a new podcast that has been birthed. What's it about? Yes, thanks for that. It's called The Future of Media Explained. So you're trying to, are you trying to edge in on, uh, <laughs> on our turf? Well, I was about to tell you why it's different. So this podcast is obviously quite a, a weekly news focus on what's been going on. We're deliberately taking a slightly longer view. So we're taking like a theme a week. And so last week it was B2B publishing, this week it's been Ukraine, and next week will be to do with the duopoly. So we're sort of having one interview and sort of a bit of discussion about that interview each week. So hopefully it'll be something that people in the industry find useful. Uh, so that's the future of media explained if you use type that into wherever you get your podcast absolutely uh, all right well thanks both and we'll see you both soon thanks matt thank you thanks for listening to the show this week if it's the first time you found us remember that you can of course like the others said subscribe or follow this show in the place where you get all the rest of your podcasts there's other ways to support the show too uh, you can become a patreon just go to patreon.com slash media pod uh, sign up there very inexpensive uh, you can choose the price that suits you and you still get access to all of the goodies and that helps us make the show and if you're in the lookout for some software for recording audio and video conversations why not use riverside.fm that's what we use and if you use the code media pod when you take out a riverside.fm trial we get a bit of a kickback so if you're looking for software, do go and try out riverside.fm and use the code MEDIAPOD. My name's Matt Deegan. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. It was a Rethink Audio production. Uh, we'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.